This is Paul Axton, and in this conversation with Douglas Campbell, who has been described as the premier theologian and New Testament scholar working in Pauline studies today, even by N.T. Wright and others. We talk about his work, the depth of his work and the breadth, that is, we go into detail to some degree on the Book of Romans, and but we also talk about the larger scope of what he's done. Thomas Torrance describes Campbell's work, The Deliverance of God, his massive work on Romans, as of profound significance for the theological world as much as for the world of Pauline scholarship. Michael J. Gorman says this is a truly theological and ecumenical work, which all serious students of Paul must now come to terms with. And N.T. Wright says Campbell's massive book picks up the big ideas that dominate the study of Paul, bends them around, spreads them out in a novel way, and insists that we see them in an unusual and disturbing light. So Campbell is recognized as breaking new ground and Anyone dealing in Pauline scholarship or just interested in the New Testament or Christianity should probably be aware of the massive work that Campbell is doing. And so I was really happy to get to have this conversation with Douglas Campbell. Hope you enjoy this this talk. Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and this morning I'm here with Douglas Campbell. I think you've been described as the premier New Testament scholar, especially concerning Paul and the Book of Romans. And certainly you've written such a huge book that I have a hard time holding it while I read it. (laughs) That's right. It it has other uses besides being a book. You can change the tire on your truck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell us a little bit your journey, you know, educationally and uh, how you came to focus in on Paul in particular. Yes, I focused on Paul by stumbling during my graduate work into a lecture series at the University of Toronto at Wycliffe College. Very famous lecture series given by Richard Longnecker, very well-known evangelical scholar, very kind and brilliant man. A horrendous lecturer, um, <laughs> but we just loved him. Uh-huh. And uh, I come to a vision from him of what somebody could be uh, communicating about these important texts in the New Testament and really speaking of the church. And it was something I'd always intuited I wanted to do. And so at that moment it became, well, let's do Paul and Romans with Professor Longnecker. So that's that's really where it started, and I've not really ever managed to get out of that. So I do look back on that and go, was that a smart choice? Yeah. <laughs> where are you originally from? I am originally from New Zealand, and I did my okay. graduate work because uh, as a Commonwealth participant, I did it in Canada at the University of Toronto, and then I I taught at New Zealand, back in New Zealand at my alma mater, University of Otago in Dunedin for seven years. And I met a brilliant young theologian called Alan Torrance from the famous Torrance family. Wow. Learned a lot from him. A lot of the ideas that went into deliverance were his solutions to the problems that I'd learned in graduate school from Professor Longnecker that I saw fitting together Um and uh, with Alan's encouragement, I, I did take a post at King's College London for seven years where I, I learned from people like Francis Watson, Graham Stanton, and then I took a post at Duke, Okay. Uh, where I still am. Okay. Yes, to this day. All right. All mm. right. Well, then, as a New Zealander, I'm sure it's not a huge cultural shock. You're, at, you're in London now, right? I'm in St. Andrews for the year. Oh, oh, okay. I have you in the wrong place. Okay. Yeah. Again, again, because of the Torrances, Andrew and Alan Torrance run an institute here, the Logos Institute, which is a, a very fertile space for conversations between people working on the Bible, theology, analytic theology. Um, so they, they invited me over for the year, which was pretty great. Of them. Okay. Yeah. Let's jump in here. The the huge discussion in New Testament studies has been old perspective, new perspective, and what you're saying, well, there's a kind of impasse, 
and that really the new perspective is not that great and not really a solution at all. Yeah. And I think that yeah, uh, I you're one of the few people I've read, you, you have a, a capacity to read N.T. Wright and say, well, actually, he's sort of drifting off and makes no sense here. Run down for us a little bit what this impasse is and how your reading is going to break through that or does break through that. Yeah, excellent question. Um, the theological construction of Paul is dominated by a gospel that we're all familiar with and that we've all been taught, where you get saved by getting justified by faith. You, you know, you try to get justified by works, and that fails. And so you get justified by faith. And once you've got justified, you go off and get sanctified. And that's when the Holy Spirit arrives and um, you live your life ethically as a member of the church and find out that God loves you and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, that is the old perspective, and it's very dominant. It, it comes from, it's got Catholic roots, but it got sharpened up in a new variation by the Reformation. It's not the only thing the Reformation said, but it's one of the things that the Reformation said. And what happened was, building up to a great sort of a climax in the 70s with antecedents right back at the start of the, the 20th century, scholars realized that this idea that you start off your journey to become a Christian with this analysis of the self-evident catastrophic failure of justification by works is a really terrible description of Jews and Judaism. Mm-hmm. And when you go and read Jews and Judaism, which is what the texts are talking about, because they're talking about works of Torah and circumcision and food laws mm-hmm. and the Lord of Moses, when you go and read what Jews are doing, they're not trying to get justified by works. Right. right. <laughs> they're people who believe that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he's given you this set of instructions to obey in just the way that, say, evangelicals, want to live a godly life by reading the Bible. And so there's a massive dissonance there. If this is the way Paul is arguing, he is misrepresenting at least some of the Jews from his time. They would find that his theology makes no sense. And most Jews do find that Paul's theology makes no sense to this very day. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's also really contributing to a kind of a harsh account of Judaism where Jews, if they're going to be proper Jews, should realize that Judaism collapses in on itself and is a bad idea. Now, that's not a great thing to be saying about Judaism. It's anti-Semitic, I mean. That's right. It's anti-Semitic. So Pauline scholars have been trying to respond to this, some of them. Some of them just bite on the bullet. They're like, this is the gospel, and if it means screwing over the Jews, so be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a terrible idea Yeah, because <laughs> uh, it means you kind of get comfortable with screwing over anybody that disagrees with you mm-hmm. and your framework. Um, so the insensitivity to the other and their plight is built into this model. So the new perspective comes along and goes, well, that's the new perspective on Judaism. We need a new perspective on Paul to deal with it. But what they don't get hold of is the underlying problem is a uh, – one that theologians have detected, but most New Testament scholars haven't. And that is uh, a problem that someone like Karl Barth detected, which is you're just starting your theological journey in the wrong place. You're starting off with people and the person, what we would say anthropology, and thinking about God and then journeying to God, instead of starting off with what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, and reveal to you through the gospel, through the power of the Spirit, which is where Paul starts mm-hmm. <laughs> most of the time. So the gospel is a declaration, and he is an apostle sent from God to tell you that Jesus has died for you. So you start off with Jesus, and then you figure out where you've come from and what Judaism and it was, In other words, the perspective that would solve this problem is a completely different order to the story of salvation, which would begin with what I call box B, with where you're saved, and the light of box B would understand what you have been saved from. So I I sometimes talk about this as the journey of an addict, a substance abuser, to health, 
is a, is a story that we tell looking backwards. Mm-hmm. We look back once we're in AA and we're on the program. We're looking back and we, the story we tell of where we've come from is a different story from the story that we told before we went into AA. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, a little bit then. How is your perspective not anti-Semitic? Well, this gives you very, very different options on what you look back on. And even though you're going to say to Jewish people, you've got a problem, it's the problem that we all have. Mm-hmm. And it's it's basically the problem that we're all in Adam. And I don't have to tell a Jew that they need to figure that out before they're illuminated by the light of the Messiah. Um, I don't have to blame them for that. That's just Yeah. I offer them the realization, the revelation that God has really revealed through Christ. And in the light of that, they can figure out what Judaism is about and what their calling is going to be. So it's a much, much softer approach to evangelism. It doesn't, you become a Christian not for, for positive reasons, mm-hmm. not for negative reasons. Right. I don't become a Christian because I'm a jerk. I become a Christian because Christ is so amazing. And in the light of that, I realize, yeah, I, I can be a jerk. <laughs> it's a kind yeah. of a safer space to realize that you've got issues, right? Right. And this is, I mean, in a sense, you're doing a Bartian Christocentric reading. You're truly applying that. That's true. That's exactly right. Yep. Hit the nail on the head. And, uh, I mean, it seems so simple, but actually it's so revolutionary. You just run up against that in Old Testament studies and, and everywhere that, well, actually as Christians, maybe that's the place to begin. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the brilliant part of your book, and maybe it's just because uh, I just thought that the, your, your big book on deliverance, the comparisons that you make between a contractual theology and an apocalyptic reading, and you're calling what you're doing apocalyptic, it so nicely, you, one of the things, the services you do, you so nicely uh, capture what theology has been up to and just reading it, I mean, you're not being untrue to it, just reading it the way that you've set it down, it really seems problematic. But could you just run down for us a bit then that contrast between contractual theology and an apocalyptic reading? Sure. Yeah, and this goes to the heart of the matter because I, I didn't work any of this out for myself. This is the stuff that I got from Alan Torrance and his father, James Torrance, who'd been talking about this stuff for years uh, mm-hmm. in Presbyterian and Calvinist circles. And when Alan shared these little articles by his dad with me, the light went on and I said, this explains everything that we're struggling with in Pauline studies. Wow, someone needs to write a book about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which turned out to be harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> so contractual theology um, basically uses a legal metaphor to understand your relationship with God. And you can see how this is connected with wanting to become a Christian because you have a problem. It's very well-intentioned. Uh, I want to make you a Christian. You're a non-Christian. I've got to convince you to move so I'll convince you that you have a problem. And the way I'll set that up is we'll set up God as a judge who relates to you on the basis of laws that must be fulfilled. And if you break those laws, you've got a problem. He's got a problem with you. And this, the anxiety of this threat of future punishment will drive you to become a Christian. Okay? Mm-hmm. So this is how it works. Um, and the image of God that we appeal to there is a political and legal analogy And here's the problem. It's a contract. If I fulfill certain conditions, God will love me. If I break those conditions, God will punish me. And I'll be outside of God's love. Um, Now, it's well-intentioned, but I've actually just walked into a trap. Because I'm going to build all of my later theology about the solution and the gospel and God and what he's up to on top of this foundation, which is a problem. And I have committed in that foundation to a contractual conditional God. 
and I can't change that now mm-hmm. or my foundation falls apart. So I'm locked in to that foundation. Uh, so I have trapped myself. Right. It's like a game of chess where I've made three very, very bad moves at the start and I cannot win. <laughs> right. uh, I don't realize that till 20 moves later, but it's over at the start. Um, and one of the biggest problems with this is I've actually decided what God is like before I've got any information about God from Jesus. Same problem. It's a catastrophe. Yeah. yeah. So the solution to this is to start off with the solution, uh, with the revelation of what God is really like through Jesus Christ. And that's the apocalypse. That's the apocalypsis, which is the revelation of God. It's just Greek for revelation, apocalypsis. Um, And then we know what God is really like. And what we realize is that God is not characterized appropriately deep down by politics or legal images. God is better characterized. And even here we have to be careful by healthy familial imagery and deep friendship imagery. In other words, God is not ever going to relate to us conditionally or contractually. God is going to relate to us like a loving heavenly parent who will never leave us or forsake us. This is what God is really like. This is what a God who's prepared to offer up his only child for us to death. This is a God who will stop at nothing to reach us and love us. So there's a very, very strong contrast between these two ways of operating, they go right down into the heart of the theological tradition, and you can see them battling away these two different models. I can smell a contractual theologian underwater at 50 yards, <laughs> and they're all over the place. They're all over the place. Let me, let um, me uh, ask you to draw, uh, if it's a characterization, that we could say that a contractual theology is also inherently coercive and violent. And what you're offering then yeah. would fit with a, a reading uh, of a nonviolent atonement, a nonviolent God. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're exactly right. To repair the damage done by a breach of contract, we appeal to the political notion of punishment where harm is repaired by the infliction of further harm. One of the most disastrous misunderstandings, I think, in the history of human thought. Um, and it's built into the being of God. If we start off with Jesus, what we realize is harm is evil, violence is evil, and we don't respond to it with further evil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, God's solution to the problem of an order that is contaminated and corrupted by harm infliction is actually to start again. It must cease. It must die. There is a judgment there. Mm-hmm. It must be kind of fall into annihilation. And God will actually resurrect. God's solution to the problem of an order contaminated with harm is an act of wonderful life-giving. And we must live out of that life uh, that is now available to us. Um, yeah. So it is the, the resurrection then is something that is has commenced with Christ, pertains to an immediate realization of how God is doing this salvation thing and pertains to uh, our own understanding of the way that we go through the world. Absolutely. The resurrection is a reality uh, that's beating down upon us gently, uh, but all around us. Um, it's, It's best to think about it in terms of spatial rather than temporal categories, because we're so linear, we don't quite get this right. Um, There is simply another resurrected dimension, which is God. God, Jesus is resurrected. The Spirit is with us, and the the dynamics and the power of that age is with us and available to us. Uh, But it's so different from what we expect and from what we think God should be like in all our kind of sinful brokenness that we really have trouble seeing it and obeying it. Um, One of the paradoxes of apocalyptic theology is it's accused of being soft on sin, but it actually is anything but. Um, It's very Augustinian. 
in the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ and this sort of a God, we realize how hopelessly, utterly sinful and broken we are. We're very distorted in our understanding. We need to repent of this stuff. Right, right, right. Yes. <laughs> uh, I just read uh, David Bentley Hart's book on, well, you know, uh, on uh, universal salvation, and would what you're describing uh-huh. then? Would you call yourself a universalist? I, I'm told that he and I are similar on this. I, I imagine that he says things rather more cleverly than I do, um, but. I probably would. I think at the moment I would be a a sort of a quietly confident universalist because I think I have to be that to respect the lordship of God. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm expecting God's plan to work, and I see any final inability or incapacity of God to get what he wants as a failure. As a, as a point or a little space where evil has triumphed and my God is going to win and is going to win everything. Right. He's going to win the whole game. Um, and, and God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So I'm expecting that to work out. Now I have absolutely no idea exactly how that's going to happen. The mechanism is something that I, I can't pronounce on, but I'm, I'm confident that if God can draw back me and draw back Israel, mm-hmm. And even draw back the church, God can draw back whoever needs to be drawn back. Yeah, which which disqualifies me from a hearing in a lot of circles. I realize that. Um, but if it's part of the gospel, I just have to I have to say what I think is true. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of his point is that he, he's a universalist with who doesn't need to be quiet about it because his job doesn't depend on not telling people. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I'm at a point to me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would think that actually it's an interesting contrast in that your own work, though, is so focused on Christ and on what Christ has done historically, and that our apprehension of who God is is through Christ. That indeed, you you may be a universalist, but you're still, at least in uh, my understanding, so grounded in the historical work of Christ, that what you're describing, would it would seem to be very different than his approach, which is focused on the person of God, almost as we can understand him, certainly, but not completely dependent on Christ. It, would, you, would you say that that's a true characterization of, of what you're, you've just said? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's entirely fair to David's position, because I think he is... He's a very good theologian. He, he uses this formal and final cause move. And I wouldn't probably use that terminology just because I think it's hard to communicate what I'm trying to say. But when you say that what I'm doing is purely because of a, a commitment to the Lordship of Christ, that is exactly right. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes tease people by saying, uh, first of all, I say, you know, do you believe, do you agree with me that Jesus is Lord? And everybody goes, yes, of course. And then I say, well, we're all universalists then um, because there's there's no room outside of Jesus' lordship for something else. He is lord. We just disagree over how that's going to work right, out. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, anyone that reads the New Testament, I would think, has to in some way be a universalist. I mean, that's the reading uh, uh, of certainly whatever you believe about final things. To my understanding, that's the only thing that makes sense of Romans. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. In other words, Paul is saying in the book of Romans, well, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. And he's accounting for everybody. And I don't know how to read it other than that. Yeah, I I think you're right. Um, I think you're right. Romans 5 is pretty hard to get around in anything other than universal terms, because Paul is very explicit that the gift of Christ is far greater and has a much larger impact than the legacy of Adam. Mm -hmm. And he makes that point multiple times. How much more, how much more, how much more is Christ given to us? And when you really sit with that and think about where it's going, 
what Paul is saying is whatever you think the problem is, what God is doing in the solution is bigger and greater. Yeah. So much of your work has, I mean, your work is focused on Romans, and I would guess that you would say the center of that is Romans 6 to 8. Yes, 5 to 8. 5 to 8. Yeah. Why would that be? Why th those particular chapters? Well, Romans was written to deal with certain quite practical questions. Um, people struggle to see that, but, but they're there once you kind of drill down into it. Paul is engaging with an opposing system that's contractual. And I think it's probably a group of um, overzealous messianic Jesus followers who aren't convinced by Paul's gospel that has a kind of a flexibility ethically so that people can convert from paganism, but they don't have to become fully law-observant Jews. Uh, so they have a problem with that. And this means when Paul responds to them, at some point he's got to tell you what the basis is for your Christian behavior or your ethics. And he's got to tell you why he thinks the Torah isn't quite going to deliver that. So he's going to tell you how Jesus has transformed your life, i.e. what the whole point of Jesus was. And he addresses that issue in Romans 5 through 8. That's where he goes after it. So because of the questions that he's dealing with, we get there the very heart of what he thinks God acting in Jesus has done for you. And then what we get is a beautiful explication of our participation in the death and resurrection of Christ and the power of the Spirit and how this has transformed us and transformed our ability to act and live, brought us close to God and drawn us into a family a divine family characterized by intense faithfulness and love towards one another. So we've been, we've been drawn into the divine communion mm -hmm. uh, where these relationships hold with one another. And this is what helps us um, to relate to one another appropriately as well. So it's, a, it's incredibly profound material. And the, the story or the ritual that really tells you about this account of salvation is baptism. Mm -hmm. which Paul interprets like a Baptist, right? Yeah. You, you go under the water completely and you have died and you are buried in Christ and then you are raised up. Uh, and, and I think probably given new clothes by the community, clean new clothes and uh, blessed with the Holy Spirit. So it's pretty cool stuff. I, I could spend the rest of my life happily in Romans 5 through 8. So let, let me see if I, I can characterize some things that you've said and, and correct me where I'm wrong. But maybe the mistake between old perspective, new perspective, in regard to the law, is in fact very much connected to the mistake that Paul is saying the human race has fallen into. That is that we are contractual beings and that law then, in some way, is the way that we relate to uh, re religiously, relate you know, through the world, but also then in Romans 7, is the way that we relate to ourselves. That in fact, we are uh, legalists and shaped by the law in the dynamic of our own interiority. And that this then is death dealing all the way through. Yeah, I, I think that's that's insightful. Um, I think that's exactly right. The whole conditional and contractual way of relating to God isn't um, an accurate account of our relationship with God. It's it's an inaccurate, distorted, ghastly human projection. <laughs> right. Right. And. Um, Part of the problem with it is Paul, looking back from his vantage point in Christ, says, you're way too sinful for any of this to work, obviously, duh, which is really where he starts to go in chapter three. Paul's very Augustinian, and contractual theologians are too optimistic. They're kind of Pelagian. It's like, oh, I can relate to God and fulfill conditions. It's not really going to be a problem. You know, God, and we'll get along, and I'll run, I'll fulfill these conditions, and I'll also police these conditions in my community. And Paul goes, you haven't got a prayer if that's the way you think you're going to get to God, because 
you're going to screw up the whole time comprehensively, just like I did. And that's where kind of the critique of Romans 7 comes in so strongly, as you just said. Yeah, Paul, Paul's got a much more radical understanding of, of the human problem, such that you can't figure your own way out of this. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you need Jesus to break into it. Right. My own work has focused on Romans 6 to 8. I've done a, the a psychotheology of you know taking into account a Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective which, of course, that's what you're getting with uh, Slavoj Zizek. They're reading, they're really interested in the book of Romans, and especially Romans 7, because they're saying, oh, well, he's just doing, uh, he's saying, well, this is the human predicament, and the human predicament is one that we are structured by the law. That is, that uh, if, and by law, they would just say by language, by our symbolic systems. And so that You also then have tapped into sociological and neurological insights. Have you, how would you apply them then to Romans, your reading of Romans 7? Yeah, um, I I think that's very interesting. I I think I I, I would share a lot with the Lacanian stuff, and I, I certainly appreciate these are very intelligent readings. I think where I would add something probably is what I would get from Bart, which is because we're, we're in a contested space where uh, evil is coming at us and tearing at us constantly, manipulating and deceiving, and it can utilize anything to get you um, and to twist you, uh, even something as good as Torah and it can certainly use political structures and language structures to get you, which is, again, kind of feeding into my belief that we, we really need Jesus to help us out of this. Mm-hmm. We can't help ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a real contribution, I think, of apocalyptic theology. I also do want to bring in um, network theory and the second personal an affect theory, you're exactly right. Network theory is something that I want to use in a very practical way when we start thinking about how this gospel works out, what its dynamics are. And what I want to suggest is the dynamics of the resurrection are relational dynamics because Jesus is lifting us into a family, uh, the only really healthy family that exists, which is the Trinity. And they have a certain way of relating and we, we carry the image of God, which means we're, we're persons, and persons are entities that primarily relate to other persons. And so the way that we build the community and then what happens to that community, this is all about networking, it's all about reaching people through networks and transforming those networks. So that's very important to me. And that's, a, yeah, that's that's a good insight. That's clearly, you know, when I say a, a, a Lacanian reading of that section, of course, Zizek is an atheist, and for him, there really is no reading other than the kind of negative reading that the law or the symbolic order is definitive. We've yeah. all been, we've all, our personality depends upon this sort of deception, and yeah, it's evil, but we can manipulate that evil, and it, it's really a very dark picture of the human situation. He lives in Romans 7, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, and takes Xanax every day to, to try to get over yeah. it. I know, and, and the irony is you've got chapter 6 in front of it and chapter 8 after it, which are the, door, which are the doorways out. <laughs> right, right. Now, he, he would object to that characterization uh, he, and even my characterization and say that his reading of Romans 6, he calls himself you know, an atheistic, materialist, Pauline Christian. But what he would say is what you said about community, except what he means by community, is not a Holy Spirit-grounded sort of thing, but kind of a labor union. Joe Hill hasn't been killed by the thugs that we can all rise up. And, well, and I know. wouldn't deny that God is at work fostering community, even where God is not recognized doing that. I, I don't think without the work of the Spirit, any human community of any sort would probably exist, but we are sustained by this relational God very graciously. Um, so I, I wouldn't deny that there are flashes 
and insights and collaborations with with the Lord happening all around us all the time. That's good. I, I would I would just urge people to, if that is the case, engage with the fullest revelation of what that community is like through the gospel. I think um, there's no point in trying to live your life in the light of a candle when you've got a searchlight, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and, and maybe before we leave that topic, I think it may not be obvious, but what the problem it we're describing, I think, and sharing in here is not that the problem is the law in some way or that the problem, but the problem is an orientation to the law in which one would imagine that there is life in the law. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, that's that's largely correct. The the problem one of the one of the problems is that what Paul calls the epithemia, the uh, sinful passions or the lusts. We we have this dimension in us that's just off um, and that really deceives us. It's it's a sinful impulse, and so it will take something like the Torah and deceive us and manipulate us. And I, th- I think Paul was thinking in particular of his own past when he persecuted the church. And in the name of God, mm-hmm. in the name of Scripture, in the name of Torah, he pursued and tortured and executed Christians, or Jesus followers, as they would have been then. And so he looked back on this and thought, hell, the law really didn't help me there. Um, I overpowered it. Um, So I think that's part of it. I do think that Paul wants us to think ethically in a very dynamic way and an interpersonal way. I don't think he likes rules. I think he thinks rules need to be handled flexibly. Paul is very sensitive to particularity, to different contexts, to their details. And what he really thinks you should do is you should navigate those situations by by talking to God and, and asking, in part at least, okay, so what do I do? What I call request ethics or even command ethics. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I think of my relationship with my wife, which is an ethical relationship, I, I believe, we don't have a set of laws or even a set of rules. We, we, we navigate everything by communicating with one another. And you can detect practices and habits and all this kind of stuff. But it's a very dynamic, communicative relationship that then adapts itself constantly to the new situation that we're facing. I think that Paul relates to God that way and and wants us to relate to God that way in this uh, delightfully dynamic way. Um, Yeah, which is, it's a little scary to people who like rules. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we like rules too much sometimes. A, A rule can always be used to hurt somebody eventually. Well, that... Uh, would apply then to your whole perspective, I presume, upon the role of Scripture and how we read Scripture. What, how would you describe your hermeneutic or your understanding of the role of the authority? Maybe that's the wrong word of Scripture. Yes, well, that, that's a critical question, and you, you've spotted the connection exactly. My next book is going to talk about this a lot. This is the uh, mm-hmm. dogmatics. I'm really going to get into this. Something I've really appreciated from Stanley Howas. Uh, the wonderful colleague, good friend at Duke, is um, when you're navigating ethically, 95% of what you do is going to be talking, talking with people, listening, engaging. Almost all human ethical activity is linguistic. And so how Christians talk is incredibly important. And you can't just float around. You need to have a kind of a resource, a a base, a a reservoir, a treasure house for where your language is coming from. And that is the gift of Scripture to the church. Now, it's doing other things, but it is doing this thing. Uh, We need to be living in the language of Scripture and the thinking of Scripture and the stories of Scripture. So it's not just a reference point for things that happened, it is something that shapes our whole understanding and the way we talk and engage with people. That's how, how deeply we need to go into it. So I'm actually going to urge Jesus followers, Christians, and Messianic Jews. Not The Messianic Jews don't need to hear this because they already do it, but some of the Christians do. I'm actually going to urge us to engage much more deeply with our scriptures in the way that actors learn their lines for a play. Um, I'd want my money back if I went to a play and everybody was walking around on stage holding the script and reading their lines. But that's what we're doing as Christians. Mm-hmm. 
we need to learn those lines so they become part of our thinking and our speaking. So that's part of it. That's, that's, a, that's a very important part of scripture. The drama of scripture or the narrative of scripture or the story, is that you're tapping into that? Yeah, I am. And there are stories and dramas and narratives in scripture. I do want to bring all of our readings to the feet of the cross, to the, to the, to the foot of the cross, to the feet of Jesus, as it were. Um, I want the story of Jesus, which is, of course, witnessed too by the scriptures. I want that to be the story that we're all living out of. So I would read a lot of scripture in that light as, as leading up to that story, as providing resources for thinking about how that story applies. If that if, Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, think, I think we can't really live... Um, a Jesus-like life with one another if we're not telling stories. Um, and scripture is the reservoir for these stories. So um, it's critical. It's absolutely critical. And you're, you're quite right. Um, that narrative dimension to what is going on is, is very important. I'm not going to preclude the Lord speaking to us, though, through a word or a phrase or a verse. It, it may be that a particular verse um, and this is often much derided by scholars, but I don't deride it. I think it's really important. The Holy Spirit might challenge you through one line, one phrase. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Are you frustrated? I'm frustrated because I don't see God as clearly as I think I would like to. And I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe Matthew's got something to say to me here. I'm, I'm not pure in heart. Right. <laughs> maybe that's the problem. Right, right. Wow, that, that's so interesting. I could just ask you all sorts of questions on that. But let me jump right in. I just have taught a class in Romans, and your reading of Romans uh, is the huge effort, and part of it is focused on what's happening in Romans one uh, eighteen and following that the rest of that chapter there. Can you run down quickly then what it is that you're doing with the an alternative understanding of that? Sure. Um, this is important um, because if I'm right about Paul being one of these guys that thinks backwards in the light of Christ, uh, the big problem for me is the way most people read Romans 1 to 2 because it seems to be the text itself can be read and often is read as somebody who was setting up a problem and then arguing to a solution. Now, I am greatly encouraged by the fact that this is the only place in all of his writings where this happens. And I'm particularly encouraged by the fact that if we read the start of 1 Corinthians, where Paul tells us what his preaching is, there's no mention of Romans 1 to 2 or of behaving like Romans 1 to 2. There's the opposite. Uh, There's what Luther called the theology of the cross, which is a declaration that God is in Christ. And you could never figure this out for yourself, that God would be crucified for you. And of course you couldn't. And this is where you meet God. And it's so scandalous that people reject it. Jews and Greeks reject it. But the power of the Holy Spirit and the miracles of the Holy Spirit will attest to its truth. So th- this is how Paul preaches. And if you really think that's how Paul preaches and you come to Romans 1, you know this is not Paul mm-hmm. preaching. So what's going on? And as you read into the text and get hold of it, you realize the very sophisticated arguments going on. And I realized, looping back to what you pointed out earlier, perceptively, I realized that People were reading this as an account of contractual theology as the basis for Paul's gospel. And I said, well, hold on a minute. What if Paul is not a contractual theologian? What if he's someone that knows darn well that contractual theology is wrong? And he's very different. What might this text be doing? And I suddenly realized that it worked beautifully as a Socratic subversion of contractual theology, Mm -hmm. like a trap. Like you talk like this, which is contractual, you read, this is how you start your preaching, chapter one, you dump on everybody. And the Greek is very pompous. The Greek is very distinctive for Paul. It's overloaded. It's bombastic. It's offset. So there are a lot of little markers in there that you get in the Greek that are harder to get in the English. Let's read Mm -hmm. that as a speech by an opponent. And then the argument 
drills into that and says, okay, look at what you've done now. You've, you've actually opened up the possibility that people can get saved without doing anything Jewish at all, the righteous Gentiles saved by works, which, of course, you don't want to do. And you've kind of erased Judaism. Judaism's kind of become a waste of time, hasn't it? Because people can just get saved by works. And you didn't really want to do that either, did you? Um, and, oh, gosh, look at that. If we're actually all sinful, like the Bible says, you've just managed to save nobody at all. That seems like a bad idea. So it's, um, it's what we call an insinuatio. It's when you start off an argument obliquely rather than by tabling your own position first. When you don't know anybody in your audience, when you're not friends, when you're not personally acquainted with them, as Paul is not at Rome, you start off obliquely by undermining the position of your opponent first. So it works really, really well like that. In fact, it actually works better than the usual reading because it solves problems that the usual reading has. But it's very hard for old perspective defenders to hear what I'm saying. It, it's just so threatening and jarring that they'll they'll say anything they can to sort of kind of stop the conversation. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if um, you know the if one could reach your conclusions. In other words, that this is what, in fact, Paul is doing overall. But as Karl Barth, I think, reads Romans one eighteen, that this could just be a summation of the what has occurred in Genesis, that these people that know God, it's not that they've known him through some sort of ethical uh, apprehension of who he is. They know him because he walks in the garden in the cool of the day, that he's appeared to Abraham, that he's shown up. And so they literally know him in a kind of firsthand sort of way. And that then is describing uh, in a kind of summation fashion of, but they knew him, but they rejected him, you know, the Tower of Babel, the rise of idolatry. Uh, that here too then, in that understanding, it seems... you. Uh, you know, you get a very similar conclusion. So why, what would you find problematic in Bart's reading or in that understanding? Well, I, I certainly think Bart's reading is better than most. Um, and he knows there's a problem here, although early Bart is a little different, I think, from the later Bart. My, my own view is Bart never actually solved the problem of what to do with Romans 1. To 3. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he gets into it in the dogmatics later on in, in part four, and he, he's still struggling with it. And what he does by that point is he psychologizes and says, oh, Paul's just saying this. A lot of my friends do this. Um, Paul's just doing this because he wants to get to kind of the next part of the argument with you in the right state of mind. He doesn't really mean what he says. He's, he's kind of, uh, yeah, overstepping rhetorically. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't personally find that solution terribly satisfactory because it's not exegetically precise enough. And I'm, I'm, I'm aware that in a, a really honest contest with my evangelical uh, opponents who want to read this passage in the way that the old perspective wants to read it, they're going to win the battle for the text. Um, they, their exegesis is going to be tighter and closer than that reading. Um, I concede that point. Uh, so I personally, yeah, I think I can do better. <laughs> right. Matt, let's specify what we're talking about. Uh, that in there, that I think it's from that that you, you get the notion of there in some way is a, a universal available light and that one could use that available light and come to an understanding of God. Right, and right. your reading then is clearly saying, well, that's that's a misunderstanding. That also, when a, in a kind of an Abartian understanding, it's not that there is a available light. Or let's get, let's let's set Bart aside and just say that if you're just reading that as a summation of what's happening in Genesis, it's not that oh, people know God in some mysterious unknown ethical way that 
no, they've known him because he showed up and they, they didn't like that he was hanging around. Right, right. Um, I, th- I think this is uh, what you're saying is something that comes up quite a lot. There's stuff in the position of his opponents that Paul doesn't disagree with. There is overlap, and one of the areas they overlap in is they're both pretty convinced that humanity is deeply sinful. I think, as you say, Paul derives that from a story of Adam and Eve. We don't need Romans 1 to get that out of Paul because he hits that story pretty hard in Romans 5, Romans 7, alludes to it in 2 Corinthians. So it, it comes up in lots of different places. And I, there's no question in my mind that Paul thinks that people are, have this, they do have a light. There is a turning away. Um, I think that's all fair. I, I do think that the, the prose in Romans 1 is more tightly connected to the wisdom of Solomon, though. Apocryphal text. Uh, it's in the Catholic Bible. It's in the Septuagint, the Greek mm. translation of the Old Testament that a lot of people are reading. And it's so intimately connected with what's being said by the author of that book in chapters 12 through 14, where there's a stinging critique of Egyptian and pagan idolatry. It fits so tightly with that text. But I think that's probably the strongest set of textual connections that the text has. So that, that, yeah, that would be where I would be on that question. We've got to kind of deal with the wisdom of Solomon it's a very, very aggressive text uh, when it comes to pagans. It's very harsh. Uh, it's got an explicit double standard. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely explicit, which is God's going to crush you pagans because mm-hmm. you, you had enough light and you didn't turn to, to God. You became idolaters and like the ten plagues, you are destined for disease, warfare, starvation, and hell. But God loves us. And even though we suffer, it's the chastisement of a parent chastising their son being brought back into his love and his care. So there's a really explicit double standard. And that's exactly what Paul kind of pulverizes in his argument, um, as I understand it. But I take your point. Um, I take your point. I think the points you're affirming are are correct. I I just don't think we need necessarily to get them all out of Romans 1. Okay. Well, the next question, maybe it's a foregone, and that is that in Romans 2, he talks about these Gentiles. And, of course, the way N.T. Wright reads that, they have the law in their heart. And, in fact, he goes on to describe it uh, at the end as actually having the spirit. And one might think, well, he's not referring to some anonymous Gentiles often a land that we don't know of, but he's talking about Christians. Yeah, right. Um, This is uh, one of the three ways of reading this mysterious group. I have to say, I don't think it's plausible because of the prices that you have to pay because these mysterious people that are saved by works, they're perfectly saved by works. What they learn about God is set out in chapter 1. So they learn by looking at the cosmos that there's a God. They don't do idolatry. They're heteronormative. They're nice to their parents, and they get saved by works. That is nothing like Paul's description of Christians from anywhere else, (laughs) pretty much where he's talking about what Christians do in their community. There's so much more that he wants to say about them, and he never says anywhere else that you get justified by your works. You get saved because you've been reborn in Jesus and bear his image and are cleansed by the Holy Spirit. So if if you want to say these guys are Christians, you've got to kind of dump everything else that Paul says. So the the one thing you can hold on to is this mention of the Spirit. And I think what's going on there is Paul probably hasn't helped us, but every now and again he drops in a little parenthesis because he's kind of irritated that he's talking about someone else and he wants to kind of do a little quick hit. And here, he makes a very common aside that he makes in other places as well. When you get circumcised, Paul cannot resist saying, snipping off a piece of skin is not going to help you with your problem with sin. Mm -hmm. What you need is to be transformed in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You need a circumcision of the heart. And that's the only thing that's going to work. Um, so he's pushing back on people who are his own country people. 
they're advocating circumcision, they're Jewish, and he's saying, look, this, he's not saying this is unimportant, he's just saying don't overvalue this. The only thing that's really going to change human beings is the action of God that, that, that reshapes them. Um, mm-hmm. And he says this in Colossians, it comes up in other places, the Holy Spirit is the one who must circumcise your heart. It's, it's using scriptural language, he's drawing on the Jewish scriptural tradition where your, your hearts must be circumcised. Uh, the prophets talk about this. The new covenant is going to write, and Jeremiah is going to write God's laws on your heart. So it's a nice thing to say, and he's just alluding to the fact that Pelagians, like his opponents, underestimate the extent to which we need to be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. he, he's not doing that. Let me ask you one final question on Romans, and that is that you know the maybe the the most difficult section for many people and where many of the most abominable doctrines are drawn out of, I think, a misreading of 9 to 11. Sure. Uh, just state, how does your reading then deal with that section, uh, and especially, I suppose, culminating in the 1132? Yes, fair enough. Um, I am contracted to write a commentary on Romans for Erdman's it won't be a, probably on the level or scale of deliverance. It, it's, it's a commentary of, it's in the commentaries and Christian formation series, which is designed to have a practical spiritual and pastoral impact, but also have a fair bit of work on the text. And this commentary is probably about a third written. And I have written quite a lot in it already on the Romans 9, 10, 11 stuff. So I just want to promise you that I've got a good solution, even if I don't get through it all right now. Mm. <laughs> I think you'll be happy. Uh, you're exactly right. A lot of people do read uh, pretty harsh stuff out of the front end of Romans 9 and other parts of this text, but I don't think we need to do that. I do think that there's a misunderstanding of one of the Greek constructions in there. Um, a very complex first-class conditional has been overlooked that kind of makes a lot more sense of Paul's argument. I actually think that election is uh, a pastoral and inclusive doctrine for Paul. It's purely emphasizing the way God initiates a relationship with us and then doesn't let us go. And the fact that... Um, some people resist that, as Pharaoh did in the Exodus. When people resist God's election and, and kind of hold back against it, harden their hearts, what happens is, as in the Exodus, the grace of God spills out in unexpected directions. And so just as the hardness of Pharaoh's heart led to the salvation of Israel and their walk to the Red Sea, so too the temporary stubbornness of Israel to Jesus has led to a spilling out and an exodus for the Gentile nations as well as they become Christians. So so election kind of flows like water around the recalcitrance of groups and individuals and finds other people to bless. And then eventually in chapter 11, it hooks back and softens the hearts of those people who are resisting it. So that, that in a nutshell would be where I go with Romans 9 to 11. So that Paul is really describing universal salvation there. I don't think Paul himself is an explicit universalist about everybody. Whether he should have been is another question. Um, But he certainly is an explicit universalist when it comes to Israel. Mm -hmm. All Israel will be saved. I don't think he can really get around that he's talking about Israel in the flesh, as he says, katasaka. And he's expecting God to save them all because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable because of what he says in Romans 9, which is God called them into being in the first place. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Rachel, Jacob, all these people, God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life and will never let them go or their descendants. And this Mm -hmm. is the sort of God whom Jesus Christ reveals to us. So, uh, yeah, I think... When you extend that logic to Adam and humanity, there's a compelling case for universalism implicitly in Paul. And again, I talk about this in the Pauline dogmatics that's coming out in a couple of months. One of the things you're doing, and and this is, I think, a kind of summation and culmination question, that you're working in prisons and communicating this understanding. And I know that the way that a contractual understanding must fall on the ears of someone who has fallen on the wrong side of the law 
must just be a kind of aggravation, seeming aggravation of everything uh, that they're experiencing. And so I'm wondering if you're working with an incarcerated group, if uh, how is it, or you know, do you think that your theological understanding speaks to people who have clearly fallen on the wrong side of the law in a way that a contractual understanding in, uh, does not? Sure, a- absolutely. Um, one of the big problems with contractual theology, which is quite prevalent, unfortunately, in, in the more kind of conservative churches, who often are the ones that are doing prison work, God bless them for that, um, is it throws you back on your own resources all the time uh, because it's it's really up to you to take the step towards God. And if you fulfill certain conditions, then God will come and help you. But it's always something that you're being asked to initiate. So in the end of the day, when something goes wrong, you blame yourself and try and kind of gin up more efforts, which is exactly what the gospel is not saying, which is that God is right here to resource you and is asking you to respond. God is taking the first step and and is resourcing you and asking you, simply to accept and then work with the gift that has come to you in Jesus and through the Spirit. Um, so contractual theology, I think, is, is, is a very um, debilitating, disempowering thing because people, even if they take it on board and they take Jesus on board, they fail and they get discouraged and they blame themselves and they kind of drill deeper down into a guilty hole. And people who are doing time don't, need to be told that and they don't need to be told try harder they need to be they they often have a very low opinion of themselves Mm -hmm. they need to be told god actually is still committed to you and you still have value which is not to say we ignore what's happened but you still have value you still matter um so apocalyptic theology starts off with the yes and then follows up with a, a softer no um, whereas contractual theology starts off with the no mm-hmm. and then has this little soft yes. And, and they don't need the no. They need the yes. <laughs> right. Uh, followed by the no. And the, the other thing about theology is um, I, I think people who are doing time, they don't just need to be talked at or preached at or Bible studied at. Um, they get a lot of that. What they actually need is just friendship. They need relationship. Um, they need someone who's there, who listens, who shows up mm-hmm. over time. And I think contractual theology is very information-driven and preaching-driven. It's very centered on somebody standing up and telling you what's wrong with your life and then how God has fixed it, and you kind of walk to the front of the church, and then off you go. Um, apocalyptic theology is about drawing you into a new relational reality and the outworking of that is not a formal institutional program so much as a network of friendships it's something that works out practically on the ground one-on-one two-on-one just getting alongside people it's got a very very practical um, ongoing kind of committed engaged dimension and that's what people need they need they just need friends. They need people who show up and say, hey, I'm willing to be your friend if you're willing to be my friend. I value you. Mm. I understand, you know, I'm realistic about this. I'm not naive. But first and foremost, Christ died for you. You have value. And I'm willing to kind of walk with you if you're willing to walk with me. That That's where prison ministry really works when it's coming out of that place. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a, a beautiful summation then. Doug, it's been so wonderful talking to you. I think you've kind of, you've got a couple of books from our discussion. You've got uh, the commentary coming out. You've got uh, the uh, another book on Paul. What is the, the next book that, that that's coming out we can look for? Yeah, it's actually at the press. It's, it's only a couple of months away from release. It's called Pauline Dogmatics, and the subtitle is The Triumph of God's Love. And so it will actually go through an awful lot of the stuff that we've talked about. Um, I don't think you've seen a manuscript yet, but um, scripture, ethics, prison ministry, church, all this kind of stuff, we, we will talk about a lot in that book. And it's a teaching book. It's, it's not primarily a scholarly book, although I, I do have a conversation with scholars. I hope that we will have conversations. But I really wrote it for the church. 
um, to get in touch with the, uh, the, the wonder and the dynamism of this reading of Paul that, that, that we often miss, that's often kind of overlaid, I think, by unhelpful constructions of him. We're looking forward to that. It's been a, a great conversation. Thank you so much for your service to the church that uh, I think that you've got this very uh, exciting understanding and insight uh, that maybe is throwing off a weight that uh, many people have borne for a long time. And your reading, I think, is just a, a, a rebirth in many ways of our understanding of, of the New Testament and, and, and of Christianity. Oh, thank you, Paul. That's very kind. And thank you for, uh, for, for doing the podcast with me. I really appreciate it. And your very insightful questioning has been helpful to me. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.